Thank you for downloading the African History and Politics Seminar, presented by the University of Oxford's African Studies Center and the History Faculty. about armed conflict. We all have worries about water scarcity. 
We all want to live in a peaceful environment, clean access to water and air, and we all you know, want to be part of a family network or community and so on. So the question then becomes, why is it that we live in this world where we, where we all want the same thing, but we spend so much time in conflict with each other? And in the context of Africa specifically, which I'm going to start by, there's sort of three things that I think we all agree on. Number one is that we all agree that Africa cannot and should not be dependent on aid forever. And that the inherent basic origins of aid were to make, help Africa to get to a place where it doesn't have to rely on aid forever. And by the way, I'm, I'm a complete Democrat, so if there are people who think, oh no, no, we actually quite like Africa being on aid and we want them to continue to be poor, you're welcome to discuss that with me during personal questions. <laughs> um, but for now, I'm going to take this given that we all, we're all part of the world, 6 billion people are right now, 28 billion people, we're going to be 9 billion in 2050. For now, we want Africa and Africans, of which there are 1 billion, to be an equal partner on the global stage. The second thing is that we want Africa, and African governments in particular, to play a leading role in development. It doesn't matter how enthusiastic or energized we are sitting in Oxford or in London or New York or in China or wherever about seeing Africa improve. If the African governments themselves either are not doing their jobs or are disincentivized by our actions, we're going to end up in a bad place. So the second point, we really, really need to do things that get African governments involved because they should be leading the charge. Um, and yet, I'm sure right now if I stopped and I asked you to name five African presidents, I'm sure many of you would struggle. If I said to you, name the people who are leading the discussion and debate about Africa, I would say probably most of you would come up with a list of celebrities before you could name African presidents. And that's a problem, because African leaders are charged with delivering growth and reducing poverty. It's their responsibility to be right there, front and center on the international stage, arguing for Africans, defending the cause of economic growth and reducing poverty. So we need to get African governments involved. And we, we definitely need them. We'll come back to that. The third point is actually not a point that uh, I came up with. I have to say I'm completely stealing this. Um, are there any Norwegians in the room? No? One. One Norwegian? One! What happened to Oxford? We Anyway. Um, about a year and a half ago, I got a phone call from, uh, from Oslo, from the Minister of Development. Um, some of you in this room might be aware that Norway gives about 1% of its income to aid. So it's a big aid supporter in terms of income. I got this phone call and it was the minister, uh, Sondheim, from, from Norway, saying, uh, seen your book, the book had just come, had just come out, would you please come to Oslo, because I'd like to have a conversation with you. And I have to say, I mean, some of you might have seen some of the stuff that I've written in, uh, or heard me speak on, on Google or the internet, YouTube, so you might have heard me say this before, but I was quite surprised because, as I said, Norway gives so much income to aid, why would he want to see me, who's been so critical of it? Um, but I took the view, I'd never been to Oslo, what the heck, I'm getting a free ticket, it'd be nice to come and see what it's like over there, and eat some salmon. Anyway, so I went, and in a room of about 40 journalists, um, the minister and I had this debate about the role of aid in Africa, was it good, was it bad, and so on. And about midway, 
through the conversation, and this is a public forum with journalists, the minister says, well, to be fair, we all have to accept one fundamental point about aid, and that is that it has created dysfunctionality amongst African governments. And I almost fell off my seat because I couldn't believe that he was making my argument. And I said to him, Minister, you're making my case for me. So that is the third point. That aid, unfortunately, despite whatever our intentions may have been, unfortunately it is creating dysfunctionality, creating dysfunctional African governments. So the three points very quickly. We all want Africa to succeed and be off of aid at some point. Number two, we want African governments to be at the forefront and motivated. And number three, aid that we're giving so generously, uh, which is at least $100 billion a year, is actually creating dysfunctionality. I'm going to give you a quick history lesson here, and I'm sorry for the big historians, because I'm sure you know more about this than I do. But let me just take you back to the 1950s, of what is the origin of aid? Why is it that this aid thing came up in the first place? Now clearly, there are sort of more religious and more imperative reasons, but just as a, from an economics perspective, I must take you back to the 1950s, where I might add, had I been a policymaker at that time, I would have been completely supportive of aid. And here's what the thinking was. The world had just come out of World War II, and it had been devastating. As many of you may be aware, um, 20 to 30 million Russians lost their lives, most of Europe was completely decimated. Buildings, um, livelihoods were ruined. But we were coming into the Marshall Plan, which, had, which basically was $100 billion in today's terms. It was $13 billion in the, in, in the terms at that time. And at that time, the American government had given $13 billion for the reconstruction of Europe and had been incredibly successful by all accounts. And Europe, within five years, was actually on the mend and able to stand up on its own. So by the time 1950s, mid-1950s, going into the 1960s arrived, people said, hang on a second, this is brilliant. We've actually been able to get a continent which was decimated, back on track, rebuilt and motivated, and people to get back to work. Why can't we do the same kind of thing in Africa? and around the world in poor countries, because actually, logically speaking, if we can give money to these countries, they too can develop quite significantly. Remember that at the time, 1950s, 1960s, many countries were attaining independence, and there was a strong feeling that these economies would struggle to actually generate economic growth because they had been attached to the British Empire and the French, you know, the French country and, and so on. So logically, it actually made sense. Hang on, these countries are quite small, they're vulnerable, they don't really have infrastructure. Why do we give them aid? Um, for the economists in this room, I'm going to throw out a very basic equation for you, which is the following. It's called the two-gap model, and it's very simple. The first equation, which is very simple, is that if there's savings in an economy, the savings will generate investment because we go and borrow from the bank and use that money to invest. And the investment would create growth. And if you had enough growth, it would reduce poverty. Very simple. Savings, investment, growth, reduction in poverty. Makes perfect sense. Unfortunately, many of these poor countries did not have savings. So they said instead of them having savings, which they don't have because these economies were essentially colonies, we're going to give them aid. 
and aid is going to be used to generate investment, investment will create growth, and growth will reduce poverty. Makes sense. And as I said to you, if I had been there, based on logic, based on the evidence of the Marshall Plan in, in Europe, I would have put my hand up and said, absolutely, we've got to go for it. But look at what has subsequently happened. In the 1960s, most of the aid going to Africa and around the world was earmarked for infrastructure. By the time the world got to the 1970s, they said, you know, no, 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 this infrastructure thing is not really working. Let's force the money, aid money, and target the aid money towards poverty. So throughout the 1970s, everybody was obsessed with poverty, one or two poverty interventions. Come the 1980s, you know what, this, this is just not working. I think we need to focus on structural adjustment and stabilization, which are basically programs of privatization. Remember Margaret Thatcher, remember Ronald Reagan in 1982, the world was obsessed with privatization. Oh, the government is too excessive, we don't need government, we need private actors. So in comes money all over the world that's basically come to help do privatization in these countries. By the time the 1990s come, once again the development community says, you know what, we, we, again, we, the pendulum swung too much, we've got it wrong. This privatization thing, too many people, in fact, some of you might be aware of some of the reports that were coming out in the 1990s, um, things about um, development of the human face, and all these people felt we've gone too much to privatization. The 1990s, they say, what we need is democracy and institutions. Governance is the problem in these countries. All the money that we're going to send to Africa and around the world is now going to focus only on governance, creating institutions. Again, sounds like a great idea. By the time we get to the new millennium in 2000, African countries are up to their eyeballs in debt and there's been no economic growth. What do I mean? In 1970, 10% of the African population was living on less than a dollar a day. Today, over 70% of Africans live on less than a dollar a day. Paul Collier, who's my PhD supervisor here in Oxford and you know, he's written a brilliant book called The Bottom Libya has talked about Africa shearing off from the rest of the world. So the world is going in one direction, look what's happening in China and India, moving hundreds of millions of people out of poverty without relying on aid, right, I might add, and Africa has gone in a completely different direction. So this begs the question, what in God's name is going on? Where are we today in Africa? With a billion people, 60% of Africans are under the age of 24, a billion people, and Africa represents 2% of world trade. It's smaller than Spain by itself. We have a situation where 60% uh, is, is, um, is under the age of, uh, of 24. But in addition, we have such a stigma associated with Africa. In the book, I call it the four horsemen of Africa's apocalypse. If you ask people about Africa, all they think about is one of the four things, corruption, poverty, war, or disease. Unfortunately, today, we live in a world where there is no common agenda around Africa. And what that meant is all the celebrities started to get involved at the exclusion of African governments. In fact, it's to such an extent that celebrities are the ones who are invited to come to world meetings, such as the G8, African leaders are nowhere to be seen. This leads me into the serious and unfortunate consequences of aid, which is a good intention, we want to help, but look at how the outcome has manifested.
manifested itself. What specifically are the problems with aid? Why is it the case that our ability and our interest and our hopes of giving aid to Africa has been so detrimental? Why has it generated a situation where after $1 trillion, that's $100 for every man, woman, and child on the planet, why are we sitting here today with Africans poorer than they were during the colonial era? Here are some of the reasons, and I'm not going to give you all of them because anyone buy the book, so <laughs> let's get rid of the most obvious one first, that aid creates corruption. I'm not going to waste time on this. We all know countless examples. Uh, the World Bank, the US government itself have had many, many uh, Senate meetings where they've talked about the issues around corruption. It's to such a perverse extent that have a look at the Transparency International Corruption Perceptions Index. It's a multiple Transparency International CPI, what it's called. It comes up every year. The majority of African countries are on the bottom ranks. As uh, my friend Neil Ferguson loves to say, you can't have rent-seeking, which is the fancy term that economists use for corruption and stealing, without there being rent. And in the case of Africa, a lot of that rent is aid. But there are other problems with aid. And by the way, these are not things that I've come up with in my kitchen. These are things that actually many of the international agencies, the World Bank, the IMF, have written extensive papers. And I would urge you, in the bibliography of my book, I've, talked, I've cited World Bank and IMF papers that specifically say aid is not working. It's not creating economic growth. It's not reducing poverty. So have a look at those. But what I will say is that there's a whole list of reasons why it is aid doesn't work. We know it creates inflation. We know it leaves African countries with a dead burden. We know that it creates what they call Dutch disease. This is the idea that it kills off the exports in the domestic country. We know this to be a fact as economists, as anthropologists, and so on. We even know that the fact that you're giving aid to these countries is one of the reasons there are so many wars and conflicts. Paul Collier has written a lot about conflict that's coming out of aid dependency. Um, but Grossman, and again, cited in the book, lots of reasons why giving aid to Africa ends up with so many conflicts. To such a point that in the 1990s, Africa had more civil unrest and conflict than the rest of the world put together. There are countries like Somalia where people have not been in school since 1992. And we simply don't care. That's the reality. But if you leave here, um, which you will, I want you to remember only one thing of what I just said. And that is that the aid system basically means that Africans are unable to hold their governments accountable. That's what all of this boils down to. What do I mean by that? Well, let's think for a moment of how you live in the West under a democratic regime. In Britain, for example. The British government taxes you, and in return, they promise to provide you with public goods. And by public goods, I mean education, healthcare, infrastructure, and national security, for example. Public goods are those kind of things that people like to give the example of a lamppost. It's the thing that we all benefit from, but none of us pay for individually. So I don't go outside and say, oh, this lamppost here is the Namisa Moyo lamppost. Oh, all of us are benefiting from the 
So who's paying for it? Those are public goods. National security, we all benefit from national security, but no one of us wants to pay the whole bill for national security. Those are public goods. In Africa, those public goods are paid for by the international community and not by taxation. So, back to the UK. We, get paid, we have to pay taxes. In return, the government promises to give us that suite of public goods, education, healthcare, national security, and infrastructure. What happens if the government doesn't give us those things? Well, that's what the elections are for. Because when it comes time to the elections, we go out and we say, you know what? That David Cameron, or that Tony Blair, or that Obama, or whoever it is, has not given me health care, no national security, I'm voting him out and choosing somebody else. In Africa, the problem is African governments can stay in office for 20, 30, even 40 years without having to ever be accountable to their people. In fact, they very rationally spend their time courting and catering to the international donors who themselves are motivated to give Africans, African governments money for the wrong reasons. David Cameron has to give money to Zambia because if he doesn't, the British population will say, I'm outraged to John helping poor people and we're not going to vote for you. But what he's doing implicitly is he's taking away the right for me as a Zambian to hold my government accountable. This is the root of all the problems. And we know this to be true. African governments are simply unaccountable to their people. But similarly, they are disincentivized. So even the good governments, the governments who are providing these public goods, they are actually disincentivized to try to provide those goods because the international community will provide them. And I said rational, they, they're doing the rational thing for the following point. One of the um, benefits in inverted commas of um, having this book be a bestseller was that I had the chance to meet many African leaders. And don't worry, I gave them hell on credit. <laughs> but I'll tell you, many of them said to me, you know, Damisa, many people around the world, they think we're stupid. They think we're greedy. They think we're idiots. We actually are incredibly rational. We know that the poorer our countries are, the more aid money we get. We know that if we show that there's conflict, there's hunger, there's desperation, and there's disease, we get more money. It's completely rational. There's no penalties. In fact, there are rewards for showing that there's global poverty and more disease. This is the world we live in. African governments are not penalized. I mean, you said this very candidly. I mean, some of them are actually very smart, decent people who say, you know what, I don't, they still say, I don't steal money, but I'll tell you, I get people from Dippet, from Britain, from the US coming to me every day saying, don't worry, Mr. President of country X, Ghana, Kenya, Zambia, whichever, take your pick. You don't have to write a report about healthcare in your country, we'll do it for you. You don't have to worry about writing a report about education, we'll do it for you. It's to such a point that African governments are essentially incapacitated and allowed to abdicate their responsibilities. The very responsibilities I have given them and charged them with as a voter, they are allowed to abdicate those responsibilities to the international community. That's the only thing. 
The problem is, we're now at a time when Western countries themselves, the donors themselves, are on vulnerable ground. What sense does it make for me as a Zambian where HIV AIDS has been as bad as one in three adults? What sense does it make for me as a Zambian to wait for the American government, which has got 10% unemployment rate and is borrowing money from China? What sense does it make for me to wait for them to come and pay for healthcare in Zambia? The American government is borrowing money from China to survive, but I should wait for somebody who's borrowing money to come and pay for healthcare. The whole situation is unsustainable. Not least because we've got a billion people in Africa who are essentially acting as a drag on global economic growth by no fault of their own, but they're being killed off by kindness, people's good intentions and bad outcomes. Ordinarily, I would have stopped here and given you a whole list of alternative ways that we can finance economic development, things that we could be doing instead of spending money giving aid to Africa that actually could work much better. But because this um, event has been underwritten by people who are not necessarily interested in Africa, and God knows why they wouldn't be, I mean, it's the best country continent on the earth. <laughs> but my personal predilections aside, uh, because there are people in this room who are more interested in international relations and some of the other things that I know in the book, I'm going to move away from Africa specifically and talk to you a little bit about some of the unintended consequences that are happening right here in Europe and also in the United States. Um, as I said, the second half, I didn't say the second half of my book, Daddy, has all the solutions, has all the alternatives, ways of connecting on and work that doesn't rely on them. That, that first will only generate bad incentives, um, but also uh, will give you options of moving away from aid. But I'm going to leave you with one thought before um, I move to the next sort of part, and that's to say there is no country on planet Earth, maybe Mars or, or Jupiter, but not on planet Earth, there is no country that has ever achieved long-term economic growth and meaningfully reduced poverty by relying on aid to the extent that African countries rely on aid today. Not one. And even though, I've given you the example of the Marshall Plan, the beauty with those programs, and there are also some examples of what they call the aid graduates, countries that depend on aid have moved on, the beauty of those countries is that they understood aid to be short, sharp, and finite interventions, five years, three years. The problem is that we have created a system in Africa where the aid is an open-ended commitment, and there's no discussion about African countries ever coming off of aid. No surprises that countries like South Africa and Botswana are doing economically better. They don't need on aid. Now on to the West. Unintended consequences. Economists point to three key ingredients when they want to look at whether a country is going to grow or not. The first one is capital, which is basically money. The second one is labor. And the third one is what they call productivity. And productivity basically means how quickly you can get something done. Economists actually believe that that productivity number accounts for 60% of why it is one country grows and another one doesn't. it, it's virtually impossible to get productivity figures for that. Just as a sidebar. So, what 
done in this new book, How the West Was Lost, is really go through how over the past 50 years we have deliberately, as policymakers, created policies that have good intentions but have ended up with bad outcomes. I'm going to quickly go through what they are and then I'm going to talk a little bit about what, what we might be able to do in this case. With regards to capital, We've just come out of the financial crisis, and so it seems quite difficult to give you some examples of why it is that capital has been eroded in the United States and in Europe, and how it's had long effects around the world. And the specific problem around the capital issue, or in other words, the specific policy that governments impose is the housing for all policy, which is simply that in the United States, the government stood up and said, we are going to provide houses for every single American. Anybody who wants a house, you get a house. That is the root cause of the subprime crisis. This is not to say that the banks were not culpable, or we as individuals, but ultimately we all went out and borrowed lots of money to finance big nice holidays and cars and nice clothes and so on. But the fundamental problem is the policy environment that the government created was one in which everybody, regardless of their ability to pay, had access to a house. I would encourage you to go and see a film that just, I don't think it's come out, I think it's come out in three weeks in Britain. It's called Inside Job. I just saw it last Thursday. Very, it's a bit exaggerated, but you know, after WMD's exaggeration, you know, everything else pales in comparison. Um, but it's worth a, worth a, uh, a watch. Um, very interesting. But the whole essence of that movie, and what I'm arguing in terms of capital, is we had good intentions. Government should be providing health care, housing for everybody. But the problem is, the manner in which we did it has now left a situation where places like the UK and like the US have over 70% of debt to GDP ratio, with the expectation that their growth is going to be slow for the foreseeable future. Deficits of around 11% which most people think are unsustainable, and that a lot of people will be out of work simply because of the subprime. I could spend a lot of time here talking to you about whether or not we all need to own houses, and whether or not there could have been another way out. Could we not have all rented? The government could not have provided another policy that could have given us access to housing without us having to borrow. But unfortunately, time will not allow that. But it is in the book. <laughs> labor. Lots of different issues around labor. Um, one of them is pensions. To this day, we have no idea how much we owe in pensions. And yet, in the next decade, there's going to be an increase of over 250% of people in the West who are over 65 years old. Do we have any clue how much money we owe in pensions? I would argue, and if you want to do a big trade and make lots of money before uh, the next downfall, it has to be pensions. It is the largest and the next big Ponzi scheme. Why is it a Ponzi scheme? Because we've convinced everybody through policy that the newcomers, the young and you guys, are going to pay for the benefits of the older people like me. So, good intentions. We want to take care of our older population. Bad outcome, the 
it definitely would have serious problems. Greece, part of the biggest problem for them is that they've got too many things, too many people on the, on the pension line. Spain, or you know, as you know what they call the pigs, that's what the fundamental issue is. Remember I said to you that the US and Britain have about 70% debt to GDP ratios? There are estimates that say, from across Europe in particular, but in the US as well, that if you add in the pensions that nobody wants to talk about, no government has said this is how much we owe in pensions, keep kicking it down when the next prime minister will deal with it. But if you add in the amount of money that we owe in pensions, our debt to GDP ratios are more like 700%. That means we've got 700 times the amount of income that we're generating every year. But in addition to the issues of pensions and healthcare, which is another big, huge cost that we're completely ill-prepared for, there's a big issue around education. Now, most of you, I imagine, are students here and incredibly privileged, not only because you manage to sit in the room and you're not standing outside like your friends, but because you're able to get an education. There are people in this country, 23% of school leavers, who cannot do simple maths, 50 plus 2 can do it in this country. Forget Africa and Asia and all those places, in this country. Britain, in just one decade, from 2000 to now, has slid in the rankings, and I would urge you to look at what they call the OECD PISA rankings, P-I-S-A. If you see how far Britain has slid in terms of reading and, and mathematics and sciences, it's incredibly steady. It's not just Britain, across the West, the United States included. So it went down from numbers like number seven and number four in reading and mathematics, like number 24 in the world. Well, if you believe that Britain's competitive edge is to provide R&D and technology, then we're not going to do manufacturing, it's too low ground, we're not going to do agriculture, you know, it's beneath us. We want to do R&D and technology. If you believe that, which I do believe, I think that's the added value for these developed economies, how in God's name are you going to do that without using education? We are willing to pay tens of thousands of pounds every month to footballers, which, listen, don't get me wrong, I believe in the market and all that, but at the same time, we're reluctant and do not want to invest in education, or even nurses, for that matter. These are policy decisions, good intentions and bad Productivity, which I said to you before, is the biggest chunk of explanation for why a country grows. And here, again, good intentions. What happened was that European countries, the United States, said, you know what, we've been doing really well in the middle of the 1980s. We've been doing quite well economically. We have this brilliant idea, because we're doing all the manufacturing, we're the leading countries in manufacturing, and so on, services. But this brilliant idea. If we can start to sell our stuff to places like China and India, just think how much money we would make. So what do they do? We open the markets, we kind of got rid of protectionism, and that's another whole other issue that I have with um, Europe and the US, because they keep saying, oh, protectionism is a, is a bad thing. Oh, China, wagging fingers at China, we've got exchange rate controls, you should stop that because protection is bad. But some of the biggest perpetrators 
protectionism are the Europeans and the Americans, particularly against Africa. Hundreds of billions of dollars are lost income for Africans. Families out of, out of work cannot put food on the table because they're facing protectionism in Europe and the US. But here we are, 1980, they say, China, India, a whole bunch of you, we think we can sell you everything from motor cars to t-shirts. And the, the math is as follows, if we can sell them 1.3 billion t-shirts, that's fantastic. We're going to increase our incomes in Britain and in America to be great. Unfortunately, as we now know, places like China and India were able to compete and reduce the cost of actually providing t-shirts and so on. So what was a good intention? Well, the good intention was we wanted to be able to get China to buy our goods and come into the international community. The outcome has been decimating. In America, there are about 50 million people who are out of work in the manufacturing sector. And many people, including myself, believe that those jobs, as they say, will not come back. Because it's simply impossible, unless you have protectionist policies, to compete against low-cost India and China. Um, that is basically, in essence, what's going on. I have lots of other examples uh, in the book, but I'm just going to start in a minute, close off by saying the following. How do we get out of this situation? How do we get out of a situation in Africa where we've created this complete economic malaise? Or in Britain, where people are not motivated to go into maths and science. They would rather be an expert, which I watch religiously, but that's on the side. How are we going to motivate other fellow British citizens who, by the time you guys are working, are going to be out of employment? What are we going to do about this? In the book, and in, if any of you are interested, I wrote an article today for the Times newspaper, which is talking a little bit about this. One of the things that I think we've forgotten is the issue of incentives. We've created this whole culture where increasingly the government's encroaching on responsibility, taking on more responsibility, but over time we're squeezing out the productivity, innovation, and creativity, and the incentive, incentive structure that has built these economies. So for example, in the US right now, almost 50% of Americans don't pay federal taxes. Public sector incomes or salaries earned from people working in sort of government-related jobs are now over $10,000 higher in compensation than people in the private sector. This is in America where everybody talks about land of the free, home of the brave, private sector innovators, $20,000 differential since 1980, of which public sector compensation is higher than the private sector. Some people in this room might think that's not such a bad thing. But the problem is, longer term, how are we going to create jobs? We've got to create incentives. And in places like Brazil, in Mexico, and even in New York, uh, under the office of a program that uh, uh, Mayor Bloomberg has been running, they've started trying to bring uh, incentives back into policy making. So in Brazil and Mexico, they call them conditional transfers. And the idea here is that you pay people for doing the right thing, the things that will help these economies on the long, in the long term. So in the case of Brazil and Mexico, 
if you are in uh, Brazil, Mexico, and your child goes to school 98% of the time, so the great attendance, the government will give you money. If you get your child inoculated for malaria or whatever disease it is, the government gives you $200. People are being motivated to do the right thing. Now, you might sit here like me and think, gosh, you know, seriously, this is the way the world has become, that we need to pay people to do things that are good for themselves and good for their children. But you know what? Maybe that's the only alternative we have. How might that be reflected in Britain or in the United States, as I said, Michael Bloomberg is looking at this? Well, maybe we have to start paying people to do maths and sciences, the things that we need to start doing cutting-edge R&D. Maybe we need to pay people to eat less or not become obese, so people lose a few kilos every month. We might have to incentivize them to do that or not eat burgers or whatever the thing might be reduce their cholesterol, so that we don't end up with type 2 diabetes burdens in our um, There was one of the other proposal that I heard of after my article came out today, which is basically maybe we need to give higher credits for people who are drawn into or encouraged to do sciences. Now this is not to say that other subjects are irrelevant. We all need to have a dynamic uh, economy fueled with, fueled with diversification. But if we have really come to a point in the West and Africa where people are so disincentivized from doing the things that can transform our economies or transform the world, we have a serious problem. I'm going to end here. Um, I'm very keen to hear questions and comments. Um, so I think I will leave it there. Should I come back there? Or, and I hope it was interesting, and I hope every 14 years.